Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters. Presented by Syracuse.com. College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen. Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by former Syracuse basketball player Danny Shays. Shays holds the record for the longest NBA career by a former Syracuse player after spending 18 seasons in the league. I talked with Danny about his Hall of Fame father, Dolph, how Rick Pitino didn't think he was good enough to play at Syracuse, and his self-admitted status as a Star Trek nerd. Danny, how are you, sir? I am doing great. It's a beautiful day. Uh, SU's coming off a win. Uh, we're getting near the good time of the season. What's not to like? There you go. Absolutely. Um, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and I've got a list. But um, before we even get started, I'm noticing your background there, Danny, and the big golden basketball trophy just stands out. I've got to ask you about it. What's that trophy commemorate? Well, in today's Zoom world, of course, you can't just sit in your office with it with that beach back fake background behind your head. So you got to set up like a TV set. So when I was doing, uh, you know, the sports shows for uh, you know for for uh, Syracuse ESPN, you know, we had a little set. I uh, got a few basketball memorabilia things here that uh, we can kind of go over. So, but this one here is one of my favorites. Uh, as you know, my dad played in the NBA for a long time. Was a twelve-time All Star. And this is actually his trophy from the year I was born, 59-60. So, so this is official All-Star trophy from, from that year. And he was an All-Star 12 years out of the 16. And that's only because they didn't have the All-Star game until his third year in the league. Otherwise, he would have been a 15-time All-Star. But uh, uh, so, yeah, so that's that one. And uh, there's a few other, other cute things around that, uh, that we can talk about. Okay, well, well, we'll pick apart the background as we go. Uh, we'll intersperse some background questions in between the basketball ones. But you know what? That's trophy so cool. You, and you mentioned your dad, Dolph. He's uh, a former Syracuse Nat and an NBA Hall of Famer. Um, I always wondered, when you were growing up in the Syracuse area, right. what was it like, you know, being the son of the famous Dolph Shays, the former Nat? Well, at that time, of course, the you know the the Nats were still a quasi-current part of the history, right? I mean, they left in '64, and uh, you know, when I was growing up in the late '60s, '70s, you know, I graduated high school '77. People around town still remembered the Nats. You know, now it's 50 years ago, so it's more of a thing, you know, in history. But back then, it was very, very current. Uh, you know, my dad was still young in his 40s and 50s, and uh, very popular in town. So. So that was the, you know, the good news was, uh, you know, I got to enjoy that part of it. Uh, Syracuse was not an NBA city, so there wasn't this kind of overwhelming sense of, of pressure. Plus, I had an older brother who got all that, uh, that part of the pressure. Yeah. Uh, but, but So a quick funny side story is the flip side, of course, is that everything I heard growing up is like, you're trying to tell me how great my father was. They'd say, oh, you'll never be as good as your father. He was so good. He was this and he was that. So we had this kind of little running joke, although, you know, I've, I realized that there was a program around that, like that you take in when you're a little kid that, oh, you'll never be as good as him. You know, he's the greatest. And so uh, as my career went along, he had a very long career, especially for his era, played 16 years and 1,059 games, which were both NBA records at that time, along with several others that he held. Wow. And the morning of my 1,060th game, I called him on the phone. 
And I said, Dad, guess what? Today's my 1,060th game. One more. You know, I didn't have to add the one more than you party. So he kind of got this smirky sound on his voice. He goes, oh, you're passing the old man, huh? And so uh, I couldn't tell if he was happy for me or a little annoyed. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, he and my mom got together and presented me with this commemorative clock. Oh, wow. For my 1,060th NBA game. And actually, if you see the basketball in the background there, that's the game ball from my 1,060th game. I was with the Magic at the time, and their longtime PR guy, Joel Glass, we were talking about it, and he snuck the ball away and had it put together for me as a presentation as, a, as kind of a you know congratulations thing. So so there you go. So at the end That's of the cool. day, uh, uh, you know, a couple other pieces of interesting background. That's really neat. Wow. Now, so you grow up in the area. I know you went to Janesville DeWitt High School. You know, given that your dad was kind of still a famous basketball name in town did you ever think about maybe not going to Syracuse and and going someplace where maybe you wouldn't be in in Dolph Shays' shadow uh actually because I mean he didn't go to Syracuse University of course he went to NYU New York University um so that was a semi uh you know kind of six of one half dozen of the other kind of issues Okay. Uh, actually, my, my last three was uh, Syracuse, Princeton, and Wake Forest. Princeton had the great coach Pete Carrill at the time, Wake Forest, up-and-coming ACC team. And when I went down for my Wake Forest trip, I was convinced that's where I was going to sign. I love the school, the program. I uh, would have been a starter in the ACC as a freshman. Mike Jaminski was the big stud at, at Duke at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and when I came back here and kind of thought things through, I realized years later that uh, the reason I signed at Syracuse is I had something to prove. People didn't think I was good enough to play uh, play here. Uh, of course, Roosevelt being the star center at the time. And, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I still ended up with the longest career of any NBA career of any player ever from Syracuse. And uh, uh, so it worked out pretty good. You know, you mentioned that some people didn't think you'd be able to play at Syracuse or you weren't good enough. I, I heard that. Tell me if I'm wrong. Rick Bettina was part of that crowd. He was, and Rick was the, was actually one of the, you know, probably the lead trumpet player uh, of that crowd. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and ironically, when Rick left uh, to go to Boston, or Boston University uh, at the time, he was making some several not so subtle hints that I would be a great addition to that team when he went. But, uh, uh, you know, Rick was, a, was an incredible force here as a coach. Obviously, you know what he's done since. Uh, but as you know, young and raw and excited and energetic, uh, you know, you know, a lot to learn from him. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, interesting to have him as part of my coach's pedigree, which uh, which is long and illustrious. But uh, but yeah, so so I realized that there was uh, you know there was that kind of subconscious element of something to prove. And and at the end of the day, I'm about to get my name in the paper again because kudos to Carmelo Anthony, who I think might catch me. I think he's on year 17 right now. And uh, so, uh, so if he you know, resigns next year, I think I'll get my name in the paper as he passes me up. It'll be, uh, be an exciting time. Good for him. I'll be sure to get your name, not only in the paper, but in the headline. Okay. There you go. There you go. <laughs> now you mentioned another fellow there earlier, Roosevelt Bowie. Roosevelt, obviously outstanding center. He was one year ahead of you. Right. A, a two part question. Why did you come to Syracuse with a guy like Roosevelt one year ahead of you and then did you think about redshirting when you did to maybe give another another year of separation between you two 
I did. Uh, let's go back. So second question first. Yes, I did. I even talked to Coach Beheim about for the possibility of redshirting. Uh, and actually, the reason I came here ultimately, as far as like why the fit, was that at the time, you remember, Kentucky had the Twin Towers of uh, uh, Rick Roby and, and uh, Phillips there. And uh, we were going to implement a Twin Towers type of offense and, uh, and play here. Wow. Uh, and so that was the idea. You had, Louis, you had obviously, Dale Shackelford is a a junior Marty Burns senior so we had a lot of opportunities those guys were going to be you know kind of stepping away and it was Lewis or uh, would have moved to the three Roosevelt and I four and five and you know implement that kind of uh, that kind of system and that was really the thinking behind it not just to come in to be a backup center and uh, uh, so you know we talked about red shirting and coach was like there's no reason to I mean there you know I was certainly college ready and uh, you know he wanted that uh, on the team, we tried it several times, and I think it might have worked too good. Uh, for, it didn't catch on, as uh, as obviously you know, we didn't do it as a regular thing, uh, unfortunately, as it turned out. But uh, uh, but I thought it was really effective. You know, La Roosevelt and I going high low, and uh, you know, obviously dominant defensively and on the boards with Lewis on the other wing, who had such great instincts. Uh, so, for whatever reason, like I said, it didn't become a a uh, you know kind of a fe regular feature, but uh, but that was the thinking behind it. All right, we're going to step away from the basketball questions to go back to this amazing background. Is that a Danny Shay's Denver Nuggets doll on a shelf? It is, uh, <laughs> and the irony. <laughs> uh, so that's what I've got a Denver Nuggets doll here. I, I just I do have to do this. Um, okay. Sorry to, to miss it up for you, but. <laughs> it's life size so yes this was presented to me when i was in denver and i go wow i didn't know i looked that much like donny osmond and, uh, <laughs> so uh i wasn't sure if it was a donny osmond doll with my jersey or a me doll that i just looked like donny osmond but i thought i thought that was pretty funny it's actually it, it, this is one of my favorite bits of memorabilia and that was done by a great fan and uh uh, so, uh, so it gets its position of prominence right there in the middle of the shot. Well, you know, it's a Denver dub, but you know, you did play for the Utah jazz for a while. So the whole Donny Osmond connection there, you know, exactly. And again, is <laughs> another funny side story. Uh, it, there was a time where, um, uh, they actually did uh, basketball figures, you know, action figures. And, uh, so they all came out and, you know, they came and took everyone's picture and made them. And then when my, they, and they sent me a, a couple of them at the end, you know, as they send to everybody. And I, I got mine and they had the same thing that the you know, Nuggets jersey in the white. And I go, sorry, hold on. I go away. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we're very informal. The joys of technology. That's uh, the old school gets in the way sometimes. The phone actually rings. Wow, who thought of that? Anyway, so I get mine and I go, why does why do I look like John Concack? And my for some reason it looked you know kind of sandy hair, not dark, and it, and it just I kind of always I kind of got a laugh out of it the whole time. And then years later, I was at an All Star Weekend and they had some of the sponsor people, and uh, I actually met the guy who was in charge of that for the NBA. And he actually did tell me they ran out of Danny Shea's heads and they did put John Conkak's head on my doll. <laughs> so, so somewhere out there, there's, there's Danny Shea's action figures with John Conkak's head on it. So 
I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm like Rodney Dangerfield here. Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield here. I get no respect. I got a new mission in life. I'm going to hit every collector store I can find so now. Find one of those? Yeah. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Um, you know, your senior year, you had a great year. Um, you know, after three years of being behind Roosevelt, you made first team all Big East, uh, led the team in scoring and rebounding, but it was also the first year of the Carrier Dome. Right. What was that like for you guys to move into that building after moving out of Manly, which was such a tight, cramped, incredible home court advantage to moving to this spacious, cavernous uh, football stadium? Well, it was two of the great home courts in college basketball history. And uh, to get to play in both of them was a real thrill. Man, you know, I actually grew up, obviously, going to Manly Fieldhouse when it still had the dirt floor and the re- elevated uh, or the, you know, the dirt floor in the building and then the elevated court. Right. Uh, with the bleachers all the way around. And uh, so I go through, you know, all the way back to Roy's runs and, and before. So that, uh, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, still friends with Jimmy and Mike Lee. You know, those are guys I used to play pickup ball with when I was, you know, in, you know freshman in high school. And, uh, you know, so, you know, that era guy is, is where I really, uh, you know, got introduced to the program. So, um, so moving into the dome, actually, we had like had all the bugs worked out. I lived in Lawrence and Dorm, which was the tall high rise right across the street. So I got to uh, enjoy Archibald Stadium as a freshman and then a sophomore. Then they tore it down, of course, junior year. And and uh, we were without a home for that year while I were building the dome. So I got to see it all in action. And then um, uh, but once the dome opened, you know, we started to practice there and it, we found out it was too expensive to turn the heat on. So their solution was to give everybody warm-up suits. So we practiced with these heavy sweatsuits. And, uh, and then, you know, they get sweaty, they weigh 50 pounds. So then it, when it got really cold in the winter, you know, they didn't turn the heat up past, I think, 50, just to keep the pipes from freezing. So then they brought these giant space heaters and they ring the court with space heaters. And you know how when, you know, when it's cold like that, you can like see the heat beams coming out, right? As the, as, so they come about the three feet and then straight up in the air. You know, they didn't make it anywhere near the court. <laughs> so the only guys warm was was the coaches because Bayheim would stand right underneath the damn heater like this the whole practice you know and wouldn't move because it was you know freezing there you could see your breath when you're playing and uh so we did that until it got like really cold then they said you know let's go back to Manly and practice so we ended up practicing back at Manly and then just playing games there uh but but the really cool part was as the thing caught on I mean I think our opening game was what 11 12,000 it wasn't uh, you know, it was bigger than Manly, but it wasn't, you know, what we're used to. Mm-hmm. And as the season went along, the, the crowd started getting into it, right? Because you remember, if you were in, in, you know, growing up in Syracuse, you knew you couldn't get in the gym because they only, they only sat, what, 9,000 at Manly. Right. And then more and more people who were casual fans or just, I don't go to game fans, now realize they can get tickets and they can come to the games, you know, so the, the crowd built over the season and, you know, went up and up little by little by little by little. And finally got to where we were close to breaking Rupp Arena's record, uh, I think it's 23,000 and change for the largest on-campus crowd to watch a college game. And uh, when we, you know, we finally broke it, and I mean, the, the gym was electric, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, 20, I forget the exact number, 23, high 23,000s, and, uh, you know, which was you know, mind-boggling for that era. And uh uh, and then, you know, we had the Big East tournament, you'll remember at home uh, yep. at that time, the, the Big East tournament at home. And then uh, that year we ended up at the NIT and played NIT games at home. So it, it actually we really got to uh, enjoy the arena, you know, a lot that year. That's really cool. 
And then, so that's the end of your senior year. Did you think you were going to be a first round draft pick? Cause you end up going number 13 in that year's NBA draft. Right. Um, but did you know where you were? I don't know how, like, you know, how certain things were back in those days in terms of, you know, your draft position. Uh, again, the scouting was very, very different uh, than today. I don't even know how I was scouted. I don't remember people saying, oh, you know, the Bulls have a guy here, who has a guy, whatever. You know, I mean, I never, like, heard of a pro scout being at the game. Uh, if you remember, it was a little bit up and down year for us. Uh, you know, Rosie and, and Lewis graduated the year before. Much of our, uh, you know, much of our team offense, you know, graduated that year before. So we were kind of having a rebuilding year. And uh, really peaked at the end of the year. Uh, you know, we kind of were a 500 team through three quarters of the year and then really turned it on at the end. He really gelled. Um, so I had heard just kind of rumory that I was probably second, third round, somewhere in there. Uh, again, not you know, nothing definitive. I didn't talk to agents or there weren't like that kind of chatter that you hear today where it's, you know, they got draft boards from, you know, 10th grade right. uh, and up. And so the real key for me was I got invited to the Aloha Classic, which at the time was the biggest, most prestigious senior all-star weekend uh, after the year. So I was out in Hawaii and just as a coincidence, Jim Beheim was the Eastern coach. And uh, so I think that had a lot to do with me being included on the roster. And it was me and Wayne McCoy, the St. John's Center uh, at the uh, uh, Manning, the big spot. We had guys like Sleepy Floyd and uh, one of the guards, a lot of guys you never heard of. Uh, were pretty good players, Franklin Edwards, Cleveland State. Oh yeah, I know. Harvey Knuckles was on that team, uh, you know. So, but we were by far the underdog. The, the thing was loaded. You had uh, Kelly Chapuka playing on one of the teams. Darnell Valentine, the great Kansas guard. You had Danny Vrains and Tom Chambers. Uh, you know, there was a, you know, a bunch of really, really good players. And our our division, the East the Eastern group, was considered by far the weakest. And I won't go into all the details, but we ended up winning the tournament on a last second miss layup in another game that evened out this, the, all the standings that we ended up winning the thing in tiebreakers. Cause we, you know, people took us lightly and we ended up playing really well together. I was on the all tournament team. And then in that weekend went from another guy to, you know, a, a second center chosen in the draft. Uh, but again, but the level of scouting is nothing like you have today. You know, today, every game's on TV, every game, they got scouting services that break down all the, you know, the game stats from every, you know, how many pick and rolls, how many this shots from different angles, what spots how far you run in the court and how fast you move from here to there. You know, all those metrics didn't exist in our era. There was a couple of scouting services that put out reports yep. and teams bought them and they flipped a coin. Uh, I, I, I did go on some pro visits, uh, teams that were interested in me. Uh, turned out I got drafted by the Jazz, who I had zero contact with before the draft, uh, was completely out of the blue. And the team that wanted me the most was Portland. Uh, Jack Ramsey was the coach there, and uh, he loved my style of play for, uh, for what they did. They picked a couple of picks behind the Jazz, so I uh, didn't end up there. Uh, but the, uh, I remember I was sitting with Kelly Chapuka at the draft, and of course, Kelly was from New Jersey, wanted to go to the Nets in the worst way. And, they, and, the, and those picks were all bunched together. It was the, I may get the numbers off by one or two, but I think the Nets were either at 10, Detroit at 11, somebody at 12 Indiana, I think, and then Utah 13. Mm -hmm. And um, so Kelly was on the edge of the seat, was so excited thinking he was going to go to the Nets as the hometown kid. Um, they ended up picking Albert King, uh, Bernard's younger brother, also right. local kid. Uh, Kelly was crushed. And while he was sitting there sulking, Detroit picked him with the next pick. And 
same kind of thing, completely out of the blue. He had no idea. He was, you know, just in a complete free fall at that point. Like, oh my God, what happened? Because he was so, you know, locked in. And then uh, Herb Williams went to Indiana. And then I went to the Jazz next. And it was like, really? Okay. So, um, or I forget if Indiana might have been one pick behind. I forget. One, one way or the other. So I did the interview. Hot Rod Hunley's on the radio. I'm talking to some guy on the phone with a Utah Jazz hat. And, yeah, that was it. I was a, I was an NBA guy. Um, all right, so we're going to step away from basketball again to come back into your set there. Um, who's who's our feline friend walking around in front of you? Yeah, so that's Diamond. He's uh, my son's a baseball player and basketball, so we named him Diamond. He's my buddy. So he's uh, my wife is the crazy. We call her the crazy cat lady. We have five cats, uh, and she does. A, she, they're awesome. Uh, I'm a dog guy myself, but she's converted me. So. Uh, so yeah, so Diamond uh, was wandering around saying hello to everybody, and was, uh, you, you may get an appearance here. Uh, here comes my our, our kitten Smokey, who's our youngest. I uh, don't know if he'll make a camera appearance, but uh, we shall see. Five of them. Wow, it's like you got to name them after five Syracuse players, and you'd get a starting. Five. <laughs> yeah, one of them is who cares. The other one's so what. Hey, third uh, one's big deal. <laughs> we don't want to get to the last one. We can't do that on the, well, maybe we can on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of names, uh, are you actually named after Danny Biazone, who was the owner of the Nats? I am, and, and the creator of the 24 Second Clock. Uh, he was a great family friend. My dad and he were very, very close. Uh, my dad jokes that he tried to get a raise, so he named me after him, but, uh, uh, but the, he said it didn't work. But. <laughs> it didn't work? It didn't work. Well, I said, you know, again. My dad was you know, had a great sense of humor, uh, but it was it was amazing. You know, I got to grow up, and there was actually a, 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 I want to say I was maybe thirteen or fourteen. Uh, there was a preseason game in Buffalo, and uh, my dad wanted to go, so uh, he called Danny up, and me and a buddy jumped in the back seat of the car, and my dad and Danny by his own in the front seat, drove to Buffalo for the game, uh, and they told old NBA war stories for two hours, and, the, and we just were flies on the wall in the back seat, you know, talking about how the 24 second clock was invented, how they came up with 24, uh, you know, just different things, how the teams were formed and, you know, why they ended up, uh, you may or may not know when the league expanded West, they actually offered Syracuse the first choice of LA or San Francisco. And Danny didn't want to move. So he ended up uh, passing. And then the Philadelphia Warriors obviously picked San Francisco and uh, Syracuse moved to Philly, became the 76ers. But uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we were talking about like that, how, um, you know, could have been the, you know, the San Francisco Nationals. Who knows? You know, it's. Uh... That would have been amazing. Um, I got to meet Danny by his own when I moved to town in January of 89. Um, obviously, he was, you know, advanced age then. But I, I did get a chance to meet him on a couple of occasions, and I even. I interviewed him one time at the old Eastwood Sports Center, the bowling alley. Right. And I can still remember uh, we, we, we chatted over lunch and I had a beef stroganoff. <laughs> and, well, and just like you in the car on your way to Buffalo, just I just sat and listened to NBA tales. It was right. amazing. Well, it's so, I mean, Danny was so old world Italian, you know, very elegant and, uh, you know, mannerly and, uh, and all that, just, you know, great sense of humor. Um, uh, but what was, was so interesting about that, you know, in today's day, everyone has, 
has related entities, right? If you own the team, you may own the arena, you own the, the TV network, and you have a you know a business, whether it's you know Mickey Harrison with cruise lines or uh, you know whatever it is. And of course, back in that era, I show you how we talked about in the old days. Uh, by the way, that's a Spencer saying hello in the background there. <laughs> Hi, Spencer. Uh, in the old days, the related entity was was a bowling alley and a snack bar. I mean, that's what it took to own an NBA team back in the day, right? It wasn't a you know you needed this massive you know, uh, enterprise behind you. But Danny was always just, you know, such a loving guy. The biggest shame, uh, you know, in his life is that he was inducted in the Hall of Fame after he passed away posthumously yeah. and never put him in. And you, and you talk about, and, and it always burned my dad because, you know, Danny was, uh, and the way he tells it, my dad tells it, it was a personality thing with uh, somebody high at the hall that uh, Danny pissed him off. And so he wasn't going to let him in while he was alive. It was a, you know, F you thing. Uh, you know, wow. but the 20, the, I mean, the invention of the 24 second clock was maybe the greatest innovation in sports across the board, saved the NBA, saved basketball. You know, the NBA in the mid fifties was, was floundering and uh, the game was slow and boring. Mm -hmm. uh, there were two rules that really screwed it up. One is there was a one shot foul, right? If you got, if it was non-shooting foul, it was one free throw. You didn't take the ball on the side. And then of course there was no shot clock. So if you're up by 10 and a half, you would go for what the equivalent of the four corners. You'd stall. They made they make you foul. You go so the defense they would foul. They get one shot and we get the ball to maybe get two to catch up. And uh, so then they just foul you back. So you couldn't get two. So it became a free throw contest. Nice. And the game's really ground to a halt. And at the end of the day, what really was the you know the the straw that broke the uh, twenty four second clock back or the other way around? You know, made it possible. There was a famous Minneapolis game in the 1917, and that became too much. So, uh, so when Danny came up with the concept of the clock, he you know, took the average number of shots in a game divided by 48 minutes, came up with 24 seconds, and that way, when he sold it, he said, "Look, if everyone takes 24 seconds of time, the nature of the game won't change. Same number of shots, same pace, but this way, you'll just be forced to show." forced to shoot they did an exhibition game as you know yep. in Syracuse in Syracuse yeah and it was it was so like immediately obvious what a great rule it was was adopted on literally on the spot and uh and the rest is history now you can't imagine a game without a shot clock when you're like even now if I go to a high school game without a shot clock I'm like grinding my teeth I'm like oh where's the shot we got a shot clock it's game sucks without a shot clock and you know to have it uh, like I said an innovation that impactful uh, and have him not get to be honored for it really was a shame because I mean, you know, an, an awesome guy. And like I said, a great, uh, you know, a great basketball mind. Okay. Uh, we got to go to the background. One more before we end the podcast here. Sure. This whole thing has been observed by Dr. Spock or Mr. Spock. Uh, what is the deal with Spock back there, Danny? Well, I'm a uh, an, an original series fan, clearly. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's the 55th anniversary. They just came out with the uh, commemorative thing there. So uh, I'm a big original series fan, uh, well-known. My brother and I, as kids, really? uh, used to watch the show. Uh, you know, imagine it's the late 60s. And uh, we lived in Buffalo at the time. My dad coached the NBA Buffalo Braves, the team that's now the Clippers. And, uh, and it was on, it had just gone into reruns uh, from the syndi you know, in the syndication. And so we could catch it at three o'clock on the Buffalo channel and four o'clock on the Toronto channel. We could still get the signal. 
And so my brother and I used to sit in front of the TV, obviously no VCRs in the day. And the episode would start and we'd race to see who could get the episode first. Oh, that's the one where Scotty beams down and then does the thing with the, you know, and we'd, we'd laugh and go back and forth. So my son was out uh, on a road trip and they were literally at a uh, gas station in New Mexico. And he saw this great uh, Mr. Spock, that's uh, actually a cookie jar, believe it or not. And so, he goes, oh, I got to get that first. So that's my father's day gift is my Mr. Spock cookie jar. And, uh, and I was much more a Spock guy than even a Captain Kirk guy. You know, I really, I, you know, scientific mind, I really identified with, with Spock as, a, as, as my guy. Scientific mind, I, like, so everybody out there understands what Dandy's talking about. I read this. You majored in chemistry at SU. I did. I did, yes. Uh, as a matter fact, probably mentor, the last basketball player to major in chemistry. <laughs> uh, my mentor, a little, little props to Dr. Nagishi, my mentor won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And uh, so, but for the NBA, I would have been a PhD chemist right now. And, uh, and maybe a Nobel Prize winner, you know, because I would have, uh, he and I were very close and I actually was his assistant and he wanted me, he left and go to, took over the graduate department at Purdue, which is a powerhouse uh, in chemistry. And he wanted me to come to be his personal guy, you know, to, to help in running that program and get my PhD there. And the NBA called and and I zigged instead of zag. So who knows? I could be Nobel Prize winner today if I oh my god not been drafted highly. That's amazing. Yeah. I did not know that. I didn't. Yeah. I, um, okay, I got to ask you before we sign off. Here's a quiz. You played 18 years in the NBA. You played for seven teams. Right. Can you name them all? Sure. And I and I have a follow up for you. Oh no. So. Utah Jazz for a year and a half, got traded to Denver, which is a funny story. We'll do it on our next episode. Uh, seven and a half in Denver. Then uh, that team rebuilt, was up, we got sent up to Milwaukee for three and a half, got traded to LA uh, as a salary cap deal. Uh, that's four. Uh, and a salary cap deal for, uh, for a salary slot. Another for the second episode. And, uh, and I was there three weeks. We had three head coaches. Uh, Randy Fun got fired two weeks into it. Then we had Bill Burke that took over. And then Magic came for the last 16 games, if you remember that year. Yeah. Uh, 93, 94. Uh, finished that up, went to Phoenix for a year, Miami for Pat Riley's first year, last three in Orlando with the Magic. Uh, Pat Riley, or uh, at that point, the great uh, Chuck Daly was in the third year of a five year deal. And he was going to keep me on there, but his back, he had back problems. He retired. So I, I wanted to get to 20 and uh, Chuck would have kept me because we had a great relationship and I was still playing really good. So unfortunately he, re, uh, he retired in the middle of his contract. The team got broken up. Penny Hardaway got sent to Phoenix. Horace Grant went to Seattle, I think it was. Uh, and I then got picked up as the TV broadcaster for the Seattle Sonics, living in Orlando, commuting to Seattle for games. Oh, another story. God. And during that preseason, we ended up playing the Minnesota Timberwolves and their center, Dean Garrett, had knee surgery. So they signed me. I actually got signed by Minnesota uh, for Team 8 and uh, went in there, had a great preseason. Season got ready to start and uh, they wanted to see if Dean was healthy. So they had me on the, the infamous injured list for the first two weeks of the season. And then the team went on like a six game losing streak. And the owner panicked and said, get rid of everybody uh, who's not on the starting, uh, you know, who's not like the, you know, currently on the roster. So I never actually played a regular season game with Minnesota. So it only half counts. Okay. okay? So and also for part two of the, of the um, uh, you know, of our podcast series, 
so in, in my NBA time, I also played in, in 18 years for 15 head coaches. And I had one Doug Moe for eight of those years. So that means in the other 10 years, I would have had 14 head coach, different head coaches. Oh my God. 10 years, oh. <laughs> including the aforementioned three and two weeks. Three in, in LA. Yeah. In LA. Um, so, but of those, of that group, so my entire career as a player, seven coaches in the basketball hall of fame, including my dad, Jim Beheim and Rick Pitino, wow. and then Chuck Daly, Pat Riley, magic. And I forget who the other one is. It'll come to me in a second. Seven who are NBA coaches of the year. Certainly Jim Beheim, you know, uh, and Patino, they're, you know, the college, whatever they got award. So uh, pretty good basketball background. Yeah, you had it good. You had it good. Well, this has been not beyond good. This has been great. Oh, my God. Uh, the time is flying by. I, I, so uh, we're going to have to let you go and say goodbye. And, and yes, we're going to have to have you on again so we can explore some more of these other stories that, that obviously you've got there. Um, Danny, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for coming by. Absolutely, Mike. Great to be on. I want to thank Danny for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and follow all of the Syracuse basketball action this season with our complete coverage on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.